0: This is Long Taylor, the rambling boy. I cannot say that I grew up in the theater. My father was a civil engineer, and my mother was a school teacher. But I certainly grew up with an awareness of the theater. Both of my parents were enthusiastic amateur actors and were active participants in community theater groups wherever we lived. They subscribed to a magazine called Theater Arts, which carried the script for a new Broadway play in every issue. My mother and father read those scripts aloud after dinner once a month. So I was all current with American theater from the age of six. In addition to that, My father frequently had a part in a community theater production, and I was often enlisted to cue him while he was rehearsing his lines at home. So I became familiar with most of the popular plays of the 1940s and 50s. Years later, in the 1980s, I went to a performance of the Philadelphia Story in Washington, D.C. And I discovered as soon as the curtain went up that I knew what the next line would be before the actors had uttered it. I had absorbed the entire play while queuing my father 30 years earlier. I imagine the same thing would have been true of Sabrina Fair, Born Yesterday, Light Up the Sky, Mr. Roberts, Dial in for Murder, Stalag 17 and any other of the Little Theatre productions that my father had a part in. Dad started playing with the Fort Worth Little Theatre in the mid-1920s, shortly after it was founded. He was a believer in the continuity of the theater, and he thought that sharing the stage with great actors rubbed off on everyone who was in the cast with them. Those were the days when touring companies still came to Fort Worth and hired local actors to fill out the cast. Dad's proudest theatrical moment came when he was hired as an extra for Otis Skinner's and Maude Adams' production of The Merchant of Venice in Fort Worth in 1931. Skinner, who was 75 that year, was one of America's great Shakespearean actors having played opposite Edwin Booth, Helena Mojaska, and Joseph Jefferson. He was nearly blind, and Dad remembered that the stage manager led him around the stage before the curtain went up, showing him the blocking for his scenes. Dad did not have a speaking part, and he was paid a dollar a night for his services, but he talked about appearing with Otis Skinner for the rest of his life. Dad also thought that just being in the audience when great actors were on stage was an improving experience, and he took every chance he got to see that I was exposed to great actors. He was a great fan of classic vaudeville, which was on its deathbed after World War II. And he was particularly anxious that I see a revival of Ole Olson and Chick Johnson's 1939 Broadway hit, Hell's a Poppin', which came to the National Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1946. Elsa Poppin' was a two-hour long string of old vaudeville acts and terrible jokes. The Encyclopedia of Vaudeville describes it as comedy of the lowest type, totally devoid of intellect. I was six years old and I loved it. Actors threw rubber snakes and spiders into the audience, An actor dressed as a construction worker, carrying a board on his shoulder, kept turning around and smacking another actor with the end of the board. A pretty girl dressed entirely in oranges kept wandering across the stage until an actor finally asked her where she was going. And she said, I'm trying to get to Orange, New Jersey. A students in the audience stood up about every 10 minutes and shouted, Which one of you mugs is Johnson? Giving the question a different intonation each time. Before the performance, my father had said, as parents are wont to do, Now you may get bored, but you will remember this the rest of your life. He was wrong about one thing. I never got bored with Hell's poppin The next year, 1947, my mother took me and my grandmother to see the musical Oklahoma at the National, with Howard Keel singing Curly, Betty Jane Watson playing Laurie, and Howard Da Silva as Jud Fry. The colorful costumes, were designed by Miles White, the Dean of Theatrical Costume Designers, who wore a monocle, and all of the reviewers mentioned their magical quality. The program gave the setting as Indian Territory, 1904. My grandmother sat silently through the first act, When the curtain went up on the rousing second-act dance number, colorfully dressed cowboys swirling their girls across the stage, singing, the farmer and the cowman should be friends, she turned to me and said, no one wore clothes like that in Indian territory in 1904. She had lived there then, and she knew. Later that year, I went with my mother to see Frank Fay and Josephine Hull in Harvey, Mary Chase's play about a man whose best friend is a six-foot-three white rabbit. We saw the play in San Francisco when we were on our way to the Philippines. Fay was born in San Francisco. And after the final curtain call, he hauled a chair out in front of the curtain and talked about growing up in San Francisco in the early 1900s. He had started his stage career as a stand-up comedian, and he had a hilarious off-the-cuff manner of stringing stories together. Jack Benny modeled his delivery on Frank Fay. The culmination of my career as a theatergoer came when I was 16. We were back in the States, in Washington, D.C. again, and my parents took me to see Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine in The Great Sebastians. Lunt and Fontaine were the legitimate theater's most sophisticated couple. They had been acting together since 1923, and their timing and their movements on stage were perfect. The play was about two actors who took a mind-reading act to Prague in 1948 and became involved in the assassination of Czech President Jan Masaryk. It opened with the mind-reading act, with Fontaine in the aisles of the theater, borrowing objects from members of the audience to hold up and ask a blindfolded one to identify. I thought she was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen and prayed that she would come to our seats, but she did not. My father later told me that she was 70 years old. Just 10 years younger than my grandmother. She retired from the stage two years later and died in 1983 at the age of 95. You've been listening to Lon Taylor, The Rambling Boy. I'll be back at 11 a.m. next Friday with another story. In the meantime, Remember that you can read the Rambling Boy in the Big Ben Sentinel every Thursday. This program is made possible by a generous grant from the Summerlee Foundation's program in Texas history.